Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Arthur Charpentier, professor at the Faculty of Economics at the University of Dauphine in France. We talk about Arthur's main interests, which lie in machine learning, big data, and econometrics. Arthur explains why economists, especially central bankers, are interested in big data and machine learning, and the problems that lie with big data when mathematicians and economists work with this in mathematical models. Arthur keeps his audience updated on all things machine learning and big data in his popular blog, Freakonometrics, which is written both in French and in English. So it's a win-win for anyone who would like to read economics or econometric work in French. You can check out all the show notes at economicrockstar.com forward slash Freakonometrics. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. So big data is related. It will be an issue because uh, econometrics, I think, was not designed for this kind of huge data set. I mean, if you got 2,000 variables, if only 10 of them are really important in the model, you will always have, if you, if you have some simple um, t-test, uh, you have usually a 5% rejection rate and, and then 5% of, of 2,000, that's a lot of variables that are not significant but will turn out to be significant. So you put a lot of noise in the model. So we have to think again on the way we define significance. So it's um, it's really a big discussion we should have on uh, not only on economics and econometrics. It's really a discussion that we have to to get in science. Bonjour. Bonjour. Ça va? Comment allez-vous? Yeah. So you speak French? Uh, small bit. I studied French for quite a few years, but okay, you have to be in the country or speak to people yeah. to keep it going. Indeed. Indeed. And um, your your English is very good. Do you teach true English? Do I teach in English? Yeah. Uh, no. I used to. Now, usually it's when I give some crash course outside France, but usually in France it's, it's in French. Okay, good, so. good. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Arthur Charpentier join me today. Hi, Arthur. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Arthur Charpentier is currently Assistant Professor at the Faculty of Economics at Université de Rennes. Professor Charpentier's teaching activities include economics of uncertainty, modeling, natural catastrophes, nonlinear econometrics, multivariate data analysis, advanced techniques in portfolio management, and probability and statistics. Arthur's research interests include copula theory, extreme values with applications on finance and insurance, option pricing, actuarial science and statistics of insurance, and risk measures. Arthur describes his blog, Freakonometrics, as an open lab notebook experiment which can be found at freakonometrics.hypothesis.org. Arthur completed a PhD thesis in mathematics at University of Leuven and a master's degree in mathematics applied economics at University of Paris, Dauphine. Arthur's books, Mathematique de l'assurance non vie and Computational Actuarial Science with R can be found on his website. Arthur, um, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that the listeners at the moment are correctly guessing that you are French. Yes, I am indeed. <laughs> Despite my bad attempts at trying to do some pronunciations there. Um, but yes, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add to that introduction that I might have missed out on? No, it's, uh, 
I think the, the topics were a bit old. I think it was on one of my old websites, but um, this is where I was trained. So now I'm moving a little bit from those areas. So I've been working a little bit on inequalities, on welfare, uh, many different things. So always connected to what I was working on before, but it's... Uh, and one yeah, thing I, I actually omitted from the introduction and something we're going to be talking about is machine learning as well. Yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah, which is something a bit new because I started like two, two or three years ago. Okay. But now it's it's starting to be a bit intense on, on, on my activities. I work more and more on those topics and uh, it's extremely interesting. So I'm very motivated to work on those topics. And your website, I, I think the way I came across it, I, it sounded like free econometrics, but it's freak, free econometrics as in free economics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's it's a it's a bit. I mean, uh, it's a bit stupid because when I started blogging, so it was in this university, and and I had a blog, but it was with my name, so it was uh, Arthur de Charpentier. Uh, blog ran something, and and I didn't like the idea of having my name as a brand, so I, I was thinking maybe I, I I should have something more fun, and I was discussing with some colleagues working on econometrics. And it was like seven or eight years ago, and and people were fighting in econometrics department between applied and non-applied econometricians. And I remember one of my colleagues telling me, "Okay, if you don't do pure theoretical econometrics, it's just free econometrics." And I thought, "Oh, I like that title, so I I will borrow it." And I've by that time I had already read the books on on free economics, so I thought, "Oh, it's it's kind of fun." And then people started to get confusion between the two. So it started, uh, I started thinking, maybe, maybe it's not a good name, but now it's mine for, for like eight years. So I, I, I'm stuck to it. So it's free econometrics. And I, I'm going to obviously have the show notes to this interview at economicrockstar.com forward slash free econometrics instead of Arthur Champontier. <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah? Oh, yeah, you can. You yeah. can. And tell me this, um, your, your pure mathematics, your background. And you talked there about econometrics. Assuming, incorrectly, I don't know, is econometrics to do with the uh, study of statistics or economic statistics, or is this something that the math department would have independent of the, say, economics department? Uh, that's a good question. Or is it just uh, an umbrella term that economists would have used to explain their mathematical approach to studying this data? Um. Well, the thing is, in, in, in economics department, you can usually have courses on econometrics. And within math departments, they have very, very similar courses. And usually they call that regression. And, and it's, it's, the topic is basically the same, but it's very, very different approach of looking at, at the same kind of problem from a mathematical point of view. Uh, I think the main difference is in mathematics, you will just focus on, on, on projections, on computing expected value, and you just really don't care about what could be the application. So it's it's uh, I, actually there there is a, an area of research which is uh, environmetrics, which is applying econometrics on environment, oh, yeah. and, they, and and it's always the same kind of technique. So econometrics, I think it's the old way of dealing with with data because I think in economics we got a a a. a, a a real need for data because it was impossible to make some some experiment a, a few years ago. So everything was. I mean, if you compare it that with uh, standard science, uh, usually you have an idea, you have a theory, so you test it and and it's working or not. But uh, you can make some tests. And and in economics, you have data, so 
for the past 100 years, we've been dealing with data. They developed this theory, which was econometrics. And it was, it was usually a discussion between a theory and, and some data. So econometrics, the way we, we teach that in, in economics department, it always have to be some connection with an economic theory. And historically, if you think about that, I think in the 40s or the 50s, you might say, okay, there is a connection between this quantity and that one, like between interest rates and, and inflation. And then you say, okay, it's going to be linear because we don't know what else we can do. And the thing we can, uh, the way we can think about that nowadays is more, there should be a function. So let's estimate this function because it can be nonlinear. So we have techniques coming from regression courses in mathematics department, and we have a lot of discussions between math and, and economics. So now we have a lot of tools to deal with those um, economic problems. The only when you talk about linear, nonlinear, there the only thing that I associate with nonlinearity in economics would be the Phillips curve. And then do you have a lot of linear applications when you look at regression with basic principles in economics? Now, I'm talking about principles of economics, um, such as supply and demand curves. But it's there's an argument suggesting that the world we live in is a nonlinear world as opposed to the linear applications and theories that were introduced to at such an early age in terms of our introduction yeah. to economics yeah. and beyond. So why are we doing linear applications of economic theory or whatever other theory? Is it just to get the basics built up and, or building a foundation so we can move on to the nonlinear or is this something that is only being explored lately through people like yourselves moving and branching into the study of economic data? I think, I think, well, I think a lot of people have tried in the past years, but, uh, the thing is nowadays we have computers and the fact that we can use computers is, is very, very convenient. So I think, when they started dealing with this linear model, it was more because of practical issues, because it's it's very simple to estimate. So usually, we we can start seeing nonlinear models uh, when we have this log transform. So when we might say, okay, we won't focus on the price, but maybe on the log of the price, and then things will be multiplicative. So there were some tricks to get rid of this uh, uh, nonlinear effect. Um, so this was the first technique, I guess, to, 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 to avoid this linearity. So move to, from something additive to something multiplicative, which is very convenient with the log. Uh, but the way I see it, for, for instance, I'm working on, on, on insurance and insurance, we try to, well, we want to get the price of insurance. And the price for car insurance has to be related to the, um, occurrence or frequency of claims. And the thing is, if you look at the age as a possible, uh, discriminant variable, uh, there is a strong linear, non-linear effect because young drivers will have a lot of claims. Then it will go down because obviously le- pe- people learn how to drive, so they get less claims. And suddenly it's going to go up when people get old. So we have some kind of, of three different periods, and we want to take that into account when we do some pricing. So I don't want to say, okay, frequency has to be a function of the age. Put that as linear. No, no it's not working like that. So we need something more, more subtle and try to take into account those possible bumps. We got, we got some bumps. For instance, um, <clears throat> women around 45 or 50 got more claims, right? So it's something which is known, which is basically coming from the fact that uh, mothers are going to give the car to their kids uh, when they want to get out. So basically they got claims, but it's reported as a claim for the mother, but we know that it's a kid driving. So there will be some, some nonlinear effect that we can observe. So it's... Um, 
I wouldn't say it's new. I think a lot of people were thinking about that 50 years ago, but basically they didn't have any uh, tools to, to, to play with that. And yes, it's, there is no reason to have something linear. I, I believe we, we can have some intuitions for continuity. Continuity is something very different because uh, uh, we might expect that there will be for some reason a break. So there might be a break at some point and then we can have a, 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 a step, a step function. But... Most of the problems are linear, but it's not necessarily continuous. So why are we still teaching continuous, uh, sorry, linear models? Uh, the first thing is it's very simple. So for students, it's, it's extremely nice. We have a lot of very simple results. I mean, within two or four hours of courses, you have already a lot of things. You can get the slope and, and the intercept of the, of, of the regression line. I mean, everything is going to be very, very simple. It's just very basic algebra. So it's... Um, the first motivation. The second one is uh, if something is not linear, we might still assume that it's locally linear. So everything somehow turns to be like a linear model. And even if you do GLM, so GLM is generalized linear models. So you have the Poisson regression, you have the logistic regression, the gamma regression. And all of them, if you look at the way we do the estimation, is just some weighted uh, linear model. So everything if you just do the proper transformation, always get back to this linear model. So it's the starting point, and somehow we always get back to this starting point. So I think it's something that people should, and students should understand well, because everything is connected with this uh, linear model. And just continuing that conversation, in one of your posts that you've put on your blog, you talked about, or you mentioned, possibly, or had a discussion that, economics has a math problem and does it have a math problem or is it that perhaps those who teach economics have a math problem is that where the it's coming from uh i don't know if the post you you, you refer to is the one that i wrote with a colleague in in Caen, so in france and it was related to the matinees of of romer so romer published a, a paper on this matinees issue which was uh but it was not on economists. It was more a discussion on economics. Yes. Uh, there might be a, a, ma- a math issue in economics. And, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I really like his paper because he's, he's getting back to all discussions we had when I was a student. And even when, when I was um, trying to get positioned in universities, I remember they always asked me, okay, are you, are you an economist? Are you a mathematician? And, and the thing is, I really don't care. I mean, I just do whatever I like. And, and the thing is, if I didn't have this background in mathematics, I couldn't do what I would be working on. So, I'm, I'm, And the thing is, a lot of things strongly rely on mathematics. I mean, currently I'm working a little bit on, on inequality measures. Okay, So we want to know if we have a lot of inequalities. So we're working on, on civil servants in France. Okay, So people working for different ministries. And we try to see if there are some inequalities between uh, salaries in different uh, ministries. And the thing is, uh, there are a lot of gender issues. Because if you look at the Ministry of Defense, obviously there are a lot of men. And in the culture ministry, there are more women. So if this inequality just coming from a, a gender issue is coming from an age issue, so we have to decompose inequality measures uh, given uh, some covariates that would be the age or, or, or the, age, the, the gender of the people. 
and decomposition of, of inequality measures is is just based on mathematics. I mean, it's it's very close to what we do in game theory on on the Shapley value. So, if you want to do properly a, a, a discussion in economics based on some difficult concepts like what what is inequality, I mean, you have to formalize that somehow. Uh, if you don't do that, you just discuss and and, and you can write books on that, but it's, it's it, you don't have the way I see it, you don't have a, a, a good discussion because you, you don't really know what people are talking about. So having a good definition of concepts and then derive them at it is a good way to do the, well, to, to, to go forward in some economics problems. Uh, and the thing is, if you get back to the, the problem of uh, Romer, the, 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 what was discussing in his paper is usually a lot of people somehow uh, put the equation in front of people just to say, okay, the math is correct, so everything else, else is correct. And and it's it, it it's not it's not I mean it's it's not the way to to do that. I mean we, we shouldn't hide behind the math. The way I, I usually put it is look the, the math the math is very simple. Okay, uh, you you just need to manipulate some concepts, but it's very simple, and I'm not going to hide behind the math. I just put the math uh, somewhere, but I just don't want to show formulas and say okay, trust me, it's right because um, I did the math, and then you have some political discussion behind. And it's, I think it's not a good way to, 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 to discuss with uh, colleagues in, in economics. Regarding your work in inequality, are there any insights that you have come across regarding your mathematical findings that have been surprising? Or was this something that you had hypothesized before you actually did the, the calculations or the data analysis and the hypothesis you came up with initially was actually confirmed through your findings in terms of inequality in the salaries of these ministries in France? Or is this a paper that's ongoing at the moment? Yeah, it's a paper ongoing. But um, actually, most of the discussion we have is more on the concept and the axioms. Okay. And and it, it's really not a discussion about calculation and, and statistics. It's really, okay, how, how, how do we want to divide inequality between different groups and different uh, uh, subgroups? And it's really a discussion related to the concept. So what should be a natural way of, of defining a decomposition of inequalities? Just like we can do, uh, I mean, the, the way I arrived in, in inequalities is just because inequalities is very close to risk. So if you look at risk measures and inequality measures, the axiomatic is exactly the same except for one axiom. So that's just one changing. And, 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 and the fun is it's going to change a lot of things. And, Nevertheless, if you look at decomposition, uh, the way we decompose inequalities between groups and subgroups is very close to what we do when we have some capital allocation in economics. And it's um, and actually, we use the same tool, which is Shapley value. So I found that amusing that we have the same mathematical concept behind two different things, very, very unrelated. I mean, we talk about risks and uncertainty, and we talk about inequalities and income. And nevertheless, we can have very, very strong connections between the two, even if it's purely theoretical. It's just on the way we, we, we want to define inequality. But I think it's a very, very important question we have to ask uh, talking about those axioms. So what do we define as an inequality index? If you think about it in a, in a few words, what would it be? What, what should it satisfy? And when you start thinking about that, you might end up at some dead end. Like, okay, I would like that to satisfy this property and this one. And you say, well... But if I ask for the two at the same time, it's not possible. So there's nothing. And this is what I find challenging in this discussion. It's 
try to find something which is relevant from a, an intellectual point of view. Like, okay, if I just forget about the math and just define concepts and just, and then afterwards you formalize that, you end up with some very, very nice ideas. You, you hope that you have something that you can formalize with uh, nice equations and you can rely on, on a lot of results you have in math, but, uh, all the discussion is very theoretical at the beginning, and then you you hope that you will get something, and then you just play with it, and and you hope that you will have something that you can explain. But it's usually usually the way I, I move in, in in dealing with this kind of data set. I'd love to move on to another topic that's very close to your heart: machine learning. But there's also another theory. I don't a copy of the theory. I don't know if there are any way related. And no. which would you prefer to? have a chat about first if we, I, I don't know. I, I personally, I prefer to chat about machine learning. Yeah. Well, I can just briefly discuss about copulas because that was my, my topic in my PhD. Yeah. So I've been working a lot on that and somehow I've been disconnected with this community for, for a few years. So I think every year I receive a paper like, okay, can you refer this paper? So I always keep updated on this theory because I find that extremely interesting and the other thing is there are a lot of connections between copula and matching. And a lot of theories like transport theories that we can see in, in risk management. And, and even if I don't work a lot on copulas, I, ha- I have this background that helps me to, to, to see a lot of problems with a very different insight. But currently I'm all working on machine learning. So that's fine to discuss machine learning. Yeah. Machine learning, it's something that has become so pr- prominent over the last, I suppose, decade. And when with the uh, the type of technology we have at the at the moment and the computer brain power that's available, that's allowing us to do this, uh, this type of work, and it's associated with artificial intelligence. So I'm no expert on this. I've just read a brief, under, tried to get an understanding of it, and Google are doing fantastic work, um, as is some Japanese companies as well. Could you tell us what machine learning is and how it applies to economics? Or that's probably too dense. Oh, okay, I can try something. Um, so uh, the, the way I see it is, is basically uh, during the past 60 years, you got a lot of people working in computational science department. And they were working on these problems related to artificial intelligence, like how do we proceed to do very basic things like uh, how can I talk to you in English? Because I, I, I've been trained in, in French. I mean, my mother was speaking to me in French, and what I know is French. And, and somehow it's possible for me to speak something that looks like English, right? And we try to have something similar with computers. Okay, so when you go on Google Translate and you put a, a sentence, you want to get a translation from French to English. And the way people were working on that, so people in linguistics and, and, and computational science, when they start, they start to get the, the first programs, um, they were thinking, okay, we have to to, to make the computer understand the, the the grammar, okay. So you have to train it, the computer to 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 learn the grammar, to know a, a lot of vocabulary, and it was not working well. And then they came up with a very nice idea, which was something that actually we know very well in economics, which is the idea of correlation. So we try to get correlation and distances and similarities between texts. So the way um, uh, uh, computers are doing translation nowadays is you, you just enter a sentence and basically it's going to get a huge data set with a lot of sentences with a perfect translation. 
So what you expect is to find the same sentence or something similar in your data set and just make some connections. And so it's working a lot of things like uh, text you can find in Canada. In Canada, you got two official languages, which are French and English. So you got a lot of official documents like laws or, or, or different papers right, wrote at the same time in French and English. So you got millions of, of, of sentences in French and English at the same time. So basically, you have to find correlation between what you want to, to translate and what you can find in the text. So it's really looking for some correlation. And this is what uh, people in machine learning have been discovering over the past years, which is you don't want to get... Uh, 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 the, well, the machine is not going to learn how uh, the human brain is working, but it's more working on similarities and correlation. So a lot of things are coming from this idea. And you can find that in medicine. Like, um, how could the machine know that you got the flu? Because, well, people like you uh, having the same kind of symptoms, they got the flu. So if you train, uh, so if you get a data set where you got the, um, the, the, the variable of interest, which is the, um, the disease, and if you got the, uh, the different symptoms, so in that case, you can try to do exactly what we do when we have a logistic regression. Okay, so it's it's really this kind of um, uh, of idea that we we see nowadays in machine learning. So clearly, people in machine learning have been learning from techniques we have in in in, in the econometrics. So I think now the discussion we should have is more on the reverse. Like, can, what can we learn from techniques that were developed in 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 machine learning? And the 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 thing is, so the the way I arrived. Uh, working a little bit on machine learning is looking at those Kaggle. So I don't know if you know a little bit about Kaggle, but Kaggle is a, a, some kind of competition you can find online. So it's the website where you can play with data set. And they do something that we were already doing in econometric courses, which was, okay, you have a data set and give me something as an output. And they do the same on, on most on classification because people on, work, on machine learning are more working on classification than on regression. But... Um, it was this idea of, how, okay, try to get some forecast and some prediction for different quantities, and there will be a winner. Okay, so the, 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 it was a game, so you were, you were, there were some winners and so on. And the good thing is um, the algorithm were available at the end, and it was possible to see which algorithm was working well. So people with a background in econometrics, usually if you have a classification to do, you just go for a logistic regression. And the thing is, they were behaving very poorly in the ranking. So I started wondering, okay, how is it possible that this technique that was somehow the best that I knew as a, as a, as a student is turning out to be so poor when you look at the prediction? So I started working a little bit on, on random forests, on boosting, on different things that was very natural for people in machine learning and try to understand exactly what they do. And And the thing is, they don't want to get a model. Okay, so what they don't get is a nice model like the econometric regression you have. It's more a black box that is going to learn from the data. And I don't really like what we got as an output because you cannot understand what's going on. You get you get data as input and you get something as an output, but you don't know exactly what's going on. Okay, so you it's like in economics if we have a model, so you're going to put a lot of inputs about the general economy, and then you get an input, an output which will be, I don't know, the inflation rate. 
but you don't know what's going on in the black box. Which you just get okay, this is my prediction, and you don't know what's going on. So I don't really like this idea from an an economist perspective, but still the output is good. So we have to see how we can um, challenge our economic model, and I think I think it's a good way to deal with that. It's like okay, we have tools to 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 get new models and to get new outputs and try to bid them. And would machine learning allow us to identify what this would what would be happening in what you refer to as the black box, in order to see, for example, like we we all know with central banks what they try to do when there are changes to a business cycle, and they either in, in, increase or decrease interest rates and affect exchange rates and so on, uh, change their reserve requirements and it doesn't it's not prescriptive. It, it, it may not be. It may work for theoretically, or it may work for one economy, but it's not going to work for every economy. And we see this with the EU. You know that yourself, being yeah. in France and me being in Ireland. You know, Ireland are on a totally different business cycle to, say, Germany, and it has been for the last couple of decades. When we were booming, Germany was barely, you know, growing at all. Even getting into recession, another recession since the the Berlin Wall collapse, I suppose. But Germany is now. Because this is such a dominant or large country, it has a bigger say in terms of how the European Central Bank would change their policies. And likewise with France, we're a small economy and what goes on in Ireland does not have a demand on what the ECB would do. For example, if we're growing at 7.5% and France and Germany growing at 1.2%, well, they're not going to put in... Uh, increase interest rates just because Ireland is growing so rapidly. So something like that regarding that black box, being able to understand what's going on is vitally important, I suppose. And we we can't have one type of input to have come up with a desired output and apply it to a company or a an economy or a household or whatever it might be that we're studying. Is is this kind of going to be a failing or would you think that we might have a point where we become quite, have more of a customized feel to an application? And it might only be to certain aspects. It might not be able, you mightn't do it for a system like the EU. But I, I, I'm wondering if macroeconomics is a good application for machine learning. Uh, I think it's more a micro issue. Yeah, I agree uh, with you, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the way I see it, I mean, it's already what you can see online. I mean, when you go on a website to buy something, behind you got some machine learning technique, and and it's the the price you get may be different from the one you, the, your wife will get on a different computer with a different uh, history and so on. So because they know your behaviors, they exactly. know your gender, your age. Yeah, and it's like what you're saying with insurance, you know. Yeah, or, you know it, exactly. It, yeah. So the the way I see it is. Um, Okay, standard econometric models were applied to macroeconomics. And then we, we had these microeconomic courses, but usually there were no applications because, okay, I don't know anything about your utility function. So we start with the things coming from experiments, like, okay, we can run some experiments and you will play and I will tell you what is your implied uh, utility function. I can somehow get your, your risk uh, level so I know your aversion on risk and so on, uh, and that's things like that. And now we have data. So basically I can look at what you've been buying online. Uh, maybe some companies have been playing with you. I mean, maybe they did offer something which was 
slightly more than what, what, what they were thinking of just to check your elasticity. Yes. And they got a lot of, of, of information. So now we have uh, uh, an important issue, which is, okay, how do we deal with this huge data set that we can get? And the thing is, econometric models are not, are not working very well. Uh, the thing is, econometric model, um, you have an explicit formula. So you know exactly which factor is going to be important and what will be the coefficient in front. If you do something in machine learning, you just get an output and you say, okay, is it that big because of my age or is it that big because of where I live? So you don't really know why you got this price, but you got it. And this is what I'm not a big fan of when you look at machine learning, which is you don't clearly understand what's going on within the the the, the the, the, the box. The thing is, in machine learning, is is really the algorithm. So you 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 what you understand clearly is the algorithm behind. So what how is it, how, how is the machine going to learn? What is exactly the target you have? So this is what you do when you do some machine learning. You you clearly specify the target, and you have the algorithm, and that's the only thing that you can control. So you don't know exactly what will happen, and I think it's really a danger, especially in insurance. Okay, so I'm working a lot on on pricing. And the way we do that, I mean, previously I was working as an actuary when I was in Hong Kong. And when you, when you define a, a, a pricing uh, a model uh, for the underwriters, you clearly explain, okay, what will be important for the price is the brand of the car, uh, the age of the driver, and where he lives. So you got the factors. But nowadays you have a lot of data coming from different places. And then you get a price. And, and so far, so good. Because if it's working well, Underwriters will like it, but just imagine that for some reason you get a big problem and then suddenly you're losing money as an insurance company. I mean, who are you going to blame? Usually you just face the actuaries and you say, okay, you're told that the price was, was valid because, well, you, you did the math and, and it was fine. But now we have a machine telling us that this was the price. We don't know what's inside. And I, 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 I don't think that using um, machine learning techniques directly would be would be nice, but still, we have to understand why why is it performing so well, and and there are a lot of interesting ideas in machine learning, especially uh, something that I really like is is um, something a bit stupid, but I mean the way I think about it now, it's uh, when you do econometrics, you have a data set, you get a model, and then you say, okay, this model was good or not good, like you look at the R square. Or something like that, but basically you 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 look if the uh, the output was good on the same data as the one you were using uh, to to get the model, and it's not correct. I mean, machine learning is telling you that okay, you, if you want to, to to create a model, it has to be on a data set, and then if you want to test it, it should be on another data set. You cannot test it on the one you've been working with to define the model, and there are a lot of very nice ideas in machine learning that we have to incorporate in econometrics. Like, do not try to see if the model is good on the same data you've been working with to, to create the model. And this uh, in-sample, out-of-sample is, is something extremely important that we should care about in econometrics. And there are a lot of very simple ideas that people were, were already very um, um, familiar with in machine learning that we didn't care really about in, in econometrics. And I think it's time to learn from those people but I think the, the the discussion should be in both way. I mean, there was a, a very nice paper by um, Al Vaillant uh, uh, on on how econometrician can help people in machine learning, because usually in machine learning you get a data set and you want to predict something, but it's very difficult to get time series. 
they were not used to this kind of, of models, and we have that in econometrics. Um, so there are a lot of, of interesting ideas, and I think it's time to get discussion between the two communities. Yep. Someone I was speaking to in a previous podcast was Josh Angrist, and you, you just triggered a thought there, and I, I can't really exactly know the conversation, but I think he was saying the same thing about using in-sample and out-of-sample data sets and being able to test them and see uh, the, the results that way. But looking at your presentation, to be honest, I, I've came across Josh Angrist and Apishka quote or reference that you made to the Central Bank in England, I think it was. Yeah, it was, yeah. Or the bankers in England. How did that go? Well, very well, yeah. They were a bit surprised to see so many uh, mathematical equations on the, on the board. But uh, I think they like it. I mean, and it's something that I've been working on for the past two years, which was try to get some insight to people on a high level, uh, like chief economists, because usually they, they don't know what's inside. And, and they start to get some big issues because uh, they start to hire people with a background in machine learning or, or some consultants telling them, okay, I'm going to give you a model. I won't tell you what's inside, but the output will be great. And, and they have to understand clearly what's going on. So it was really a discussion. So I just want to explain them, okay, there is no magic in machine learning, but this is how it's going to work, and this is why it's slightly different from econometrics. Like, something extremely important is is that econometrics is really a branch of statistics and probability. When you start econometrics, you say, okay, we have some data, and it's coming from a, 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 a probabilistic model. Each observation is a realization of a random variable. And they have a distribution and so on. So it's something extremely important in, in, in econometric, which is absolutely not the case in machine learning. You just got numbers and you just don't care where they come from. You don't have any probabilistic model. You don't have any distribution behind. So you can do machine learning without any knowledge on probability. And the thing is, well, do not expect to get a confidence interval at the end because you cannot get a confidence interval if you don't have a probabilistic model. So there are a lot of things that people are not aware of and I mean, for a lot of reasons, because economics and, and computational science were quite separated for the past 50 years. Uh, even if you can still find a lot of connections in the past, I mean, there were a lot of things on computational economics, but it was still quite different. And I, th I think, yeah, it went well. I mean, people, people, we, we got a lot of discussions after the talk, and people were really interested to know about those techniques, because, yeah, it's puzzling to see how well this performs, and. They, they got this training in economics and econometrics, and they say, okay, I don't want to say that everything I've learned is, is false, but I want to understand why those people can beat my, 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 my teams of econometricians. And I think it's good to understand why they beat them and why we can learn from, from the other one. It's not like they're going to take positions in, in central banks and just we're just going to throw away all the econometricians. It's, more, it's good to have people from machine learning within the group and they start discussing, and, and they can do a lot of things great together. But uh, don't say that this community is better, so just remove the other one. It's more We need a, a more, more discussion between the two communities. And why would central banks be interested, or central bankers be interested, in machine learning? Because it kind of goes almost contradicts what we were saying earlier on, that it's more micro as opposed to macro. Uh, because I think a lot of, of central banks are working more on, on, on a micro level. I mean, there, were, there was a great presentation by someone in England working on, on credit cards. And now you have a lot of data from credit cards. So you know everything about different customers and you can 
have some insight about some possible credit crisis. Yeah. I suppose they want to learn a study about people's behavior in terms of exactly. their credit usage and so on. And they want to get this information immediately, almost immediately, so that they can make forecasts of what yeah. the likely outcome or probabilistic outcome could be supplied to econometrics. Exactly. Uh, the, the, the main problem is, uh, is the fact that we start to have those big data. So big data is related. It will be an issue because uh, econometrics, I think, was not designed for this kind of huge data set. I mean, there is a, there is a problem in number of rows, which is more just a computational issue. So it's really not a big deal. We just have to parallelize, and that's fine. But the main problem is the dimension in terms of number of variables. I mean, when you have to have a model with, I don't know, two thousand variables. You cannot do that with a, a simple laptop, and, and you have a lot of, of false positive variable. So you have, I mean, if you got 2,000 variables, if only 10 of them are really important in the model, you will always have, if you, if you have some simple um, t-test, uh, you have usually a 5% rejection rate, and, and then 5% of, of 2,000, that's a lot of variables that are not significant but will turn out to be significant. So you put a lot of noise in the model. So we have to think again on the way we define significance. So it's um, it's really a big discussion we should have on uh, not only on economics and econometrics. It's really a discussion that we have to to get in science. And this is what we got so many papers in in Nature and Science related to that issue on significance, uh, because a lot of people in in in, in biology have this issue. In, in, in. And it's I mean there was uh, when I was at this bank of England there was a great talk by uh, Andrew Gelman. So he's working at, uh, I think it's in NYU or Columbia in New York, and he's, he's been involved in this issue of significance. And uh, I remember he was showing one 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 very simple model, uh, and, and the way the dataset was designed. So they decided to remove some people for some reasons, and then he told us, okay, let's try to see all different combinations of of people, and it turned out that basically the dataset they kept at the end what the one that will give you all viable significance. So it's like shitting with data set, and, and it's, it's not a good way to do science. So it's, it's fun that we can have this kind of discussion with statisticians and, and try to think again of what we do in econometrics. Like, uh, I think everything we teach in econometric courses should be thrown away or, or, or more discussed. So when you do a, a, a t-test to test significance, we have to discuss a little bit, okay, what, what, what means significance? Uh, and and have a discussion with the students because nowadays we don't have um, a great output to provide so we cannot say, okay, this is the um, ultimate solution. So we, we are just in the discussion nowadays and I think we should have it with the students. Would you have any conflicting results in terms of t-test and p-values? Or, or would they mostly be, for example, some, if you're doing a 95% confidence interval and you have a t-test over the critical value of 1.96 but a p-value that's yeah. uh, more than 0.05? What, what happens there? You know, what's the conclusion? But it's a big problem with big data because uh, you cannot look at the p-value. It's it's a problem of multiple testing, and it's it's really a major issue in big data. And so far, I didn't see anything convincing about uh, new techniques that can be used. I mean, I, I I start to move also away a bit from the frequentist approach to the Bayesian one. So Bayesian statistics was something I was not really trained on. I mean, I, I've been following courses when I was a student, but uh, the thing is, the more I learn about Bayesian statistics, the more I like it. I mean, it's extremely natural 
the way we do the test is is very very nice and very natural and again somehow when i was a student so it was in the 90s it was very theoretical but nowadays we have we have computers so mcmc is something very simple you can run on a laptop so it's um uh, a long time ago we have okay we, we got bayesian econometrics but in practice it's so complicated you, you you need to get a phd in computational science before starting to do something relevant but nowadays we got some codes and uh, it's as simple to get the bayesian regression than to get a frequentist one so maybe it's time also to get more courses on 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 bayesian economics i think i think it's a uh, we have to to teach more statistics and econometrics to students, but not only the way we were doing it. It's more, okay, you have to learn about Bayesian. You have to learn about non-parametrics. A lot of very interesting ideas are coming from non-parametrics. Why do you want to focus on the model that can be non-correct? I mean, model selection is a big issue. Uh, having good conclusion with a false model is useless in practice. So let's get back to the roots and say, okay, maybe we can do something non-parametrics. So, I think it's a discussion we should have with 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 colleagues and and and, and students and a lot of researchers also don't know anything about non-parametric statistics and I find that um, I don't know I don't I don't really like this idea uh, I think we should be we should get training in in very different areas in statistics before doing econometrics Arthur regarding artificial intelligence no it could be just a software program but it's also built into a hardware like a robot. So when people think of artificial intelligence, maybe they perceive it as to be robotic. Um, the Japanese are building these robots that are almost human-like. And that's possibly the future of what's going to happen. Maybe there's going to be a replacement of labor, you know, at yeah. airports, check-ins and so on, to have a human face rather than a something, a swipe card. You know, they, they might have that for some kind of human interaction, if you want to yeah. say it that way. Can machine learning be detrimental to an individual where by a, say, for example, if robots become very mainstream and you have them in your household and they learn a lot about you, is there some kind of level of trust that you can have with the data that that robot gathers? And, you know, because every robot probably starts off with a simple algorithm, a basic algorithm that builds up over time based on the inputs it receives from yep. the external stimuli that you give as an individual or your family or their surrounding environment, whether the doorbell rings at a certain time, what time you leave the house at, when the dog barks, for example, that could all be inputted. And could that be hacked? That kind of robot be hacked and used against, used against you in terms of, yes, it's optimal to rob this person's house or get their credit card details, or we know that person's behavior. I, I know it almost sounds like a, a thriller-esque scenario. Or oh, but it's not. It's, it's, no, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know anything about robotics, but the thing is, all this information, you can already have it. I mean, just, just think of the way, I mean, if you use public transportation, usually you have a card. Okay, so usually you just, you just say, okay, I'm going to take the bus, here is my card, and just imagine that someone is going to, to, to steal yours. Then you know exactly that every morning at 9.10, you get the same bus, and you, you get back home by taking the bus of, of, of I don't know, 17.47. And, well, in that case, it's very simple to rob you. I mean, all those data are already available uh, just because of those cards, 
because of uh, also information from your credit card. I mean, if you look at the credit card, you get a lot of very different patterns. Uh, you know exactly that every uh, Saturday morning I go to the market. So usually I arrive there at 7.30, I go to the bank, I get my money, and then I shop. So just look at my um, of, of the data I can, uh, I can provide or I can generate uh, can give you all the information that can be hacked. And it's, it's really a big issue. Um, a lot of, well, the thing is we have a lot of routines. And I think it's very simple. It's, it's extremely simple to, to observe that. So from, from a human perspective, I mean, if, you look, if I look at your bank account, I can see a lot of things. I can see that you, you, uh, you pay a lot of things at very, diff, very, very precise moments and things like that. So we can see a lot of things from the data we already generate. So it's, it's really a big issue we have to, we have to, to be careful about, yeah. Well, could blockchain be used to kind of encrypt all of this data, like the way we see with Bitcoin? And a lot yep. of banks are taking on this blockchain as well to protect their own accounts and the data that they gather themselves. Yeah, I guess it's a possibility, but again, I'm not, I'm not a specialist on this area. But I think, I think, yeah, the protection of data is something which is very important. But on the other hand, I, I got, I got similar problems because I, I'm discussing with companies to to get some data to do some to do some model, and people nowadays are just scared. They just say, okay, I cannot give you that because it's it's not anonymous. So we can have complaints, and 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 I'm just saying, but. I'm not going to, to do anything with that. I mean, I just don't care about the name of that person and so on. So I just want to do a model. Um, and it's very, very difficult nowadays to get some data. For instance, I, I try to work a little bit on demography because I'm working on a bit on life insurance. And I would like to get uh, a data set that I'm quite sure it, it does exist, which is for everyone in, in, in France, I would like to get the date of birth and the date of, of, of death. Right, so I just want these two informations. We should add that because it's called the Etat Civil. We got that from the French Revolution, and it's something I would like to have. But the, everyone is telling me that we don't have this data in France. All the, the and, and even if it was existing, they were telling me no, it's private information because you got the number of that person. It's clearly identified, so it's not anonymous. But even if I just want to do some demography, no one is willing to give me this data just because they are scared of that. And then I want to, to study also the impact or the correlation between the age of, of death of people and their parents. Like if you tell me that your parents died at 40, then it gives me a lot of information on, on, on the remaining time you have before dying. And I would like to get this um, discussion and, and, and study on, on possible correlation between the age of death of, of parents and kids. But I cannot get the, um, the connection between the, the, the parents and the kids by their national security number. And, and it's not going to improve because everyone is, is scared to give uh, personal information. So uh, on the other hand, so we have a lot of techniques that I'm quite sure that, that they will be used by insurance companies. Okay, They have the same data, but they will, they will do, do that on their own. And we cannot do some public research on the same topics because no one is willing to, get the data, to give us the data. So we start to get some problems between private companies and public research because we cannot get any data in, in, in public research while a lot of companies just think of Google, just think of, of Facebook. They have a lot of information and, and it's a private company and no one in universities can challenge that. And it's, um, we have this, well, it's protection and at the same time we would like to, to use that to get some, uh, 
information and, and that can be freely available by doing some research. And I think what you're expressing there, the frustration, a lot of academics at the moment have decided to become uh, provide their research as an open source platform. For example, the Journal of Machine Learning Research, a lot of academics had left another machine learning a journal, 40 of them, I think, and set up their own as an open source platform and make all their research available for free rather than having to be ha- have someone externally to pay a subscription model. And also Google's TensorFlow, they're also open source. Uh, it's an open source library for numerical computation using data flow graphs. And that, again, um, allows everyone from students to hackers and researchers to provide and innovate their thoughts and their computational skills and trying to analyze all this machine machine learning techniques. And I think it's a fantastic way and a great way forward to provide this open source platform in order to enhance our development and understanding. And really, data should be the same. Data should be in the public domain. It's public. I know there's a private issue, but for example, in Ireland, every 100 years, we release the census, the last census. Yeah. So, for example, the previous census was, I think, 2000, or sorry, 1911 or 1916, I think it was. Yeah, 1916 was the latest one that's released. So that's there to protect the current generation who could still be alive. But it's interesting to see, like you had mentioned, the the perhaps it doesn't give you the, the, the dates of death or birth, but it gives you who's living in that household at that particular point in time and you know, so data, a lot of data that would be not sensitive should be made available. Yeah, on a public I completely platform. agree. I completely agree. And on the other hand, we, we well, I think, so I was reading a book on privacy and I think people just don't want to get some companies selling them something because they know that they live in some neighborhood, that they have this kind of car and so on. So what we want to do is just do some research so it will not affect them. So I guess there should be a distinction between uh, the use of the data. I guess as 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 academics, we should have access to data uh, just to make some studies. So it's not because I want to get exactly this person. I want to get information on that specific person. I really don't, just just don't care about that person. I just care about the uh, the overall pattern, and, and it's, it's something that people should understand that they, if they if they agree to release some some data. It should be extremely interesting for us to learn a lot of things and on different patterns, and, and we don't really care about who's behind these data, but um, we need that information somehow to make connections between data sets. So we, we we need some identification of people, but it's just to make connections. We just don't care who she is. Can I ask you a couple of quick fire questions, yep. Arthur, before we go? I love your T-shirt. <laughs> is it a is that a tequila Mexican? Yeah. Tequila, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I bought it when I was actually in Tequila. So I went oh, there right. as a kid. Yeah, I think it was three years ago. So I went there. So I've been uh, cutting my, my, my cactus. And uh, yeah, it was really a lot of fun. Also, what I'd love to ask is if you could step into a DeLorean and time travel, who or where would you go first? What era and who would you like to talk to? And what would you say to that person? Mm. Oh, that's a tricky question. Oh, I really don't know. I, I, I still don't know if I want to go in the future or in the past. Uh, I think I would like to go to the past more. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question. 
Oh. I have to think about that. Mm, I don't know. No. <laughs> First time you've probably been stumped. Yeah. I should have asked you a mathematical question. <laughs> <laughs> and what book would you recommend to our listeners? For those people who might want to start getting into the work that you're studying at the moment, machine learning or any other any other book. Oh. I know you mentioned you're reading something on privacy there. Oh, actually, uh, you, you mentioned Josh uh, Angrist and and I really love his books. Yeah, the 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 the, the two latest books he published were, were just amazing. I mean, I I love the way he's doing econometrics. It's uh, uh he's an amazing researcher, and I I think in the conference is also an amazing um, uh, communicant, and, and and you can see that from his book. So he's he's starting with with a very simple problem, and then you. T- so he's not showing the math in front of you. It's just, okay, let's have a very simple question. Like the paper he published on what is the optimal size of the, of the classroom for kids. So he started with a very simple question and they say, oh, we got some data. So let's play with that. Oh, but we missed something. So maybe we should have some instruments and so on. So it's just a very nice storytelling. And if you're a mathematician, you can see connections and you say, okay, this, this part would be tricky. Here we will have a problem, but it's just showing the the story, and it's very very nice. I really love his books. And yeah, and that's another guy I commented on his T-shirt actually when I was talking to him last. He had a, a nice T-shirt on. It looked like a Star Trek T-shirt, but uh, he, he said it wasn't. But for those people who want to check out more econometrics, go to episode twenty-two with Josh Angrist or economicrockstar.com forward slash Josh Angrist. And again, it complements some of the the stuff that we were talking about here. Also. Perhaps one more question I'd like to ask. Who would your main influencers be when it comes to your work? Hmm. Also a difficult question. Uh, I think I love people that are polymath. Just people who have been working on different areas because usually they got some insights coming from, from different places. And, and uh, I, I, Usually I don't really focus on those people that just work on the same area and, and got a lot of results on, on one, one small but then it's really people discussing a lot of things. Uh, I really like those kind of people, yeah. Archer, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I absolutely learned a lot from you. Share it again with our listeners where they could find you. Oh, they can just go on my blog, just send me an email or just go on Twitter. I'm also very uh, active on Twitter. So send just chat with me on Twitter or on my email and it's usually fine. And what's your Twitter handle? It's Freakonometrics at Freakonometrics and that's how I found you Arthur uh, you can find all the links to Arthur at economicrockstar.com forward slash Freakonometrics Arthur thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar you are an Economic Rockstar thank you Frank <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors. 
at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.